when looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. What up? Excuse me while I whip this out. Oh, gnarly! Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. I knew it, I'm surrounded by assholes. And good evening, friends! With over 30 years of experience and a superb reputation for being a detail-oriented company, Lacey Cleaning has some of the highest work standards in the cleaning business. That's the fact! Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile, grout cleaning, new construction cleanup, rental turnovers, vent and duct cleaning, odor elimination, office and or business cleaning, power washing, residential cleaning, you name it, they do it. Check them out. To contact them today, LaceyCleaning at gmail.com or call them at 609-709-8536. That's what I'm talking about. Hi, this is Andras Jones from Radio 8 Ball and Nightmare on Elm Street, and I'm riding the Dreamliner on Crazy Train Radio.
All right, folks, the man on the line, he wears many different hats. He's an actor. He's a musician. He has hosted Radio 8 Ball in many different forms, on the AM, FM format, on live stage, you know, now in a podcast form. Andres Jones, how you doing, sir? Really great. Thanks for having That's, me. I appreciate the time, sir. So we'll start with Radio 8 Ball there because I know that's a big deal in your life currently. What is new with the show? Because, like I said, it has morphed over the 20 years that you've been running and hosting and producing this show. Well, probably the the newest thing is our Radio 8 Ball app that's available for iPhone users. Um, The format of the show is that we're a pop oracle. We answer questions by picking songs at random and then interpreting them like musical tarot cards. And we've done that in all kinds of ways. It started out, we'd have just play CDs on shuffle function and have guests, people in the audience call in, uh, listeners call in and ask questions. We'd put a CD player and put the CD in the CD player and press shuffle function. And then we've done lots of shows where we've had live musical guests on the show. And over the years, we record like quarter, close to 2,000 songs. We've been doing the show since 1998. And now all those songs live in the Radio 8 Ball app. So if you download it, you can ask it a question and then shake it, and it'll play a song at random from one of those 2,000 songs as your answer. And you can share it with friends or just enjoy, or you can play Radio 8 Ball, sort of be your own Radio 8 Ball host and at a, you know, with a gathering of people who are into musical divination. And, uh, yeah, and we're still putting out a podcast every week using the Radio 8 Ball app during the, uh, you know, the Covidian season that we're in. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's Radio 8 Ball. Well, you know, it's interesting because I've listened to a few of them. And you have, uh, or I should say many people, whether it be fans, the musicians, yourself, have asked the questions and played music. Has any of your answers or interpretation changed like you thought one thing when a question was brought up with the music but yet it's changed as time has gone on oh yeah always always i mean i think that's one of the most interesting aspects of the show over time is that even if the answer was right in the moment there's still more context. So, like, if someone asks a question, I don't know, should, you know, should I, a lot of people call in and ask about relationships. So if someone asks, is this relationship going to work? Whether or not the answer that they get is, yeah, it is, or no, it isn't, if you listen back five years later and that relationship is over or has continued, thinking about the moment when you ask that question and the answer you got, it's going to mean something. Even if it means the same thing, it's going to mean something different because if you're still together with that person, you're thinking, wow, this like either that problem's still there that I was asking about or, oh, wow, I was really having a problem with something uh, that now is not a problem for me. Or if the relationship is over, you look back and think, wow, I was really trying – hard to hold on to that relationship now it's five years later it's over i can see myself 
trying to interpret the answer as they should stay together when clearly the song was saying, no, 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 <laughs> you need to move on. So, yeah, I mean, just always with context, it's just like it's like going back and reading journal entries. Like you can tell yourself what's true in the moment for you, but you don't know when you're writing all the things you don't know. When you go back to it, it's really, I don't know, for me, I find it actually uh, gives me a lot of compassion for myself in the past. Even for being wrong, like, oh, I was the, the, sort of like you look back and you're like, wow, you were wrong, but you were really sincere about it. You really did believe that. You were just wrong, you know, and there's something, I don't know, I don't know if it's called maturity, but there is some kind of maturity to that uh, experience. Well, obviously you have 20 years of history with this program in some form or fashion. Has there any... Is there anything that stands out that would be really thought-provoking even to this day? Well, I think probably, at least for me, the biggest piece is that, so I, uh, I started doing the show in 1998 at, uh, KAOS at the Evergreen State College. And I'd been doing the show for at least a few years before I had someone call in and she said, hey, can I, uh, can I make some suggestions about how you do the show? I was like, yeah, I'm always in open. And she was like, well, I've been in these uh, dream seminars. And when we interpreted the, the dreams, you would always say, well, if this, like someone would write down, people would write down their dreams and then the professor would read the dream. And then people would interpret it, and they'd, but they'd interpret it and say, well, if that was my dream, this is what it, me- what it means. And so you might want to think of if you were, if you, when you're interpreting, saying, if this were my question, that's what it would mean. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting because my dad was a dream psychologist, and that sounds a lot like his dream seminars. What, and she was like, well, what's your dad's name? I was Richard Jones. She was like, that, those are the dream seminars that I was in. And... It was one of those moments, and it was also right around my father's birthday, and he had passed away uh, in 95, and this was probably in, like, probably 2004, around when this call came in. So I'd been doing the show for many years, and I had never really connected it with my father's dream seminars, and then when I realized how much they had influenced it and how little I had been aware of it. And it was one of those things that uh, I'm still sort of reckoning with, like both how I could have built this show so much on his work and been aware of it, and also sort of those natural rhythms of the child becomes the father of the man kind of thing. So, uh, and then, you know, we're going to be getting to talking about Nightmare on Elm Street, but it's the same way with that. Like, when I was cast in Nightmare on Elm Street, I had no idea that it was such a straight – Why I didn't connect that it was an amazing synchronicity that I grew up as a child of a dream psychologist, and here I was acting in probably the most famous dream-based film series of all time. Um, well, that was going to lead to my next question. Yeah. So, I, so I guess just to say – there have been a lot of amazing things, but I think the main thing about synchronicity is that the most amazing 
the most amazing synchronicity is going to be the one that happens to you that you can't quite explain to anyone else why it's so powerful for you, but you just know that there's something more there. And for me, obviously, that was the biggest one. But uh, like I said, that was leading into my next question. Uh, was there a certain point or would it have been this uh, when this lady had brought this up on a phone call that, hey, you know, because I grew up the son of a uh, dream psychologist that, and I did acting in Nightmare on Elm Street and what I'm doing with Radio 8 Ball and everything else along the way throughout your career. When did you fully put down the point that, wow, this is all connected, whether it's karma or however you want to put it? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, I'm not quite sure where the where I connected about the Nightmare on Elm Street and the dream thing. It had to have been earlier just because after I started giving interviews about Nightmare on Elm Street, it just was one of those things that naturally came up. Uh, and I'm still kind of reckoning with it. I, I, you know, it's one of those things where when there's something so big that's so obvious that you don't recognize, at a certain point, you just start to realize, I need to just keep expanding my consciousness because there's probably more things. Like, I always think about when you meet, not even when you meet people, like if you're sitting next, we're not in, we don't, we're not in restaurants anymore, but if you're in a restaurant and there's someone at the table next to you, I've always felt sort of that the nature of synchronicity is that if there's someone in your proximity, if, like if you just pick one person and you just put these two people in an elevator, they got stuck in an elevator together for four hours and they just talked, you'd find out some crazy synchronicity. Or maybe in the thing like you wouldn't even know. Like here's an example. I uh I once dated a woman very shortly. It was a brief little fling and it was it was nice, it's wonderful. Many years ago when I was much younger. And I it had ju- it turned out we found out and I'm not quite sure how that her let's see her mother who was dead had dated my uncle who was also dead now at the time and just thinking that's such a tenuous connection and the kind of thing that you would never find out about a person unless it just happened to come out up but it's actually a very intimate thing over time and it just made me think of how many like if you and I if if you weren't interviewing me and we were just talking we might find out that we share some crazy deep connection in the deep deep past if we could find our way to telling each other what it was like we're not going to sit down and tell each other what our all our relatives are but if I happen to say oh my uncle Frank like I did to this woman and she was like Frank oh yeah I it's one of those things that, uh, yeah, I just feel like we're always on the verge of discovering another big connection like that. And it's funny how the world works like that in many cases. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So, obviously, we've brought up the uh, subject of nightmare, uh, Rick, or I should say, Andras was known for the role of Rick. And have, has your opinion changed 
on how the character is portrayed in the film over time? Uh, well, I this might this, this is going to sound kind of whatever however it's going to sound. Uh, Rick is a really popular character, and I if I hadn't gone to so many conventions and met so many people who really either connected with him, like, as they were kids, it's like, oh, he's, like, such a good older brother. Or, like, he'd be such a good boyfriend. And he's just such a a nice... I think, in general, I think Rick is a more beloved character than I am a person. Um, <laughs> and, you know, not that I'm a hated person, but I think people really, really love him and in a way that I could never have appreciated at the time. Um, I didn't like myself as, you know, not that I hated myself, but I didn't like myself that much, and I didn't think of myself as the best boyfriend or the cool brother. And so, and I also just felt bad, you know, I guess to some degree I felt bad about that I got killed. I don't know if I actually did at the time. But just for, for, for lots of reasons, I didn't, on that set, I didn't feel like I was the coolest guy by any means or the coolest person by any means. But something about Rick's character and the fact that he got killed and, you know, whatever, you know, charm I had as a young man um, is all led up to that character being, you know, just a lot cooler than I, than I feel. And so when I go to cons and I get to meet people, it's pretty wild to – have people relate to me as that it does uh not that again not that i'm a i'm a bad dude or something like i'm not you know but i guess it's one of those things when people treat you a certain way you get to act a certain way and so there's a certain way when i go to cons that people treat me like that character and then i get to act like that character and then i get to be cooler and better and be a cooler and better person because i have the opportunity to be yeah, with two things with that, how you say that, though, is because, one, when I said this week that we were going to be talking to you, it was a lot of the female fans said, oh, wow, he was my crush growing up, or he was this, like a lot of complimentary things. But on the other hand, as you say that answer, I've also heard you in past interviews, and it might have been on Never Sleep Again, I don't remember, but pre previously mentioned you felt at times you were the black sheep of that particular movie. Why would you think you were the black sheep at the time? Uh, probably the way uh, Rennie Harlan treated me. He, uh, he, I was going out with Tuesday, and he had the thing for Tuesday, and so he uh, treated me weird. And uh, and so you know, it's like when someone's the boss, you know, when the boss has an attitude about you. Uh, it 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 affects your experience. So, okay, makes sense. Yeah. Well, have you and Rennie had a since it's been over thirty years? Have you guys actually maybe had a drink and discussed maybe some of the tension from the time and buried the hatchet? Uh, I'd like to say we had. I don't think. Uh, my impression is it doesn't really matter that much to him and. I guess it probably doesn't matter enough to me to force the issue or to, to like, make it an uncomfortable thing. I really don't want to – I mean, I don't really want to talk bad about Rennie. I have in the past said things, and 
you know, it's just stuff in the past. Like the only reason I end up ever saying anything about him is because people ask me and I, and I tell the truth, but then people are like, why did you say anything bad about Randy? I'm like, I'm not trying to say anything bad about him. He's just, just saying the truth. Uh, you were answering the so, question. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, no, you know, the we've only, we've only, re- we've only seen each other once since we shot and the one time we did, he was, uh, just, I thought it was pretty rude. <laughs> that was pretty rude. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, he also, he, you know, I, there have been times when uh, this is where I, just, this is how I am. I'm going to give both sides. I'm sure there are times when I've been someplace and I haven't given, you know, there are fans of this who are listening. You go to a con and, a, you know, lots and lots of people want to spend time with you and you want to spend time with lots of people, but sometimes maybe you just don't have the energy and so you can come off as rude because you're not giving extra in that particular moment. And maybe that was what Rennie's experience was. So I don't feel like he went out of his way to be uh, – yeah, I, just, I don't think he cares that much. So uh, I don't want to add more fuel to anything by bringing the part of me that, that cares to it because, like I said, it was a long time ago. He made a movie that, uh, you know, that a lot of people love. And no one who loved the movie is going to get any more joy out of it by knowing that there was some interpersonal stuff on the set. You know, ultimately, you know, he went on to do, you know, Ford Fairlane and Cliffhanger, and I went on to create Radio 8 Ball, and, uh, and we're both doing fine. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, why do you think the fans, and like you said, you've been to many cons over the years and such, and dealt with a lot of fans and co-stars and everything else like that. Why do you think the fans are so loyal to the series? I have to chalk it up to the uh, the twin talents of Wes Craven and Robert England. I think that's undeniable. Uh, Wes, I didn't get, I never got to know him. I just know him as a film artist because he wasn't really involved in Nightmare 4, but Clearly, Wes Craven is uh, a cinematic master, if not a genius. And Robert England is, you know, he is the closest thing we have to a Boris to Boris Karloff. You know, he is a. They're just they're. There's a very small club of actors who became associated with a monster in the horror genre who also became beloved to their audience. You know, and maybe, you know, Karloff, Lugosi, Lon Chaney, and Robert England. I don't know. Maybe there's another one in there, but, you know, I guess Anthony Perkins, to a sense, I mean, is psycho, uh, but I feel like there's something different. That monster is still a human monster. There's something about... uh, about what Robert's done. So, like, the two of them, I mean, that's... And, and I will, you know, to not to give credit to my dad, but to give credit to the idea of dreams. I mean, if you can tap in to the magic and the mystery and the fear and the mythology around dreams, that's going to connect. So, yeah, Wes Craven and Robert England collaborating on something that goes deeply into the experience of dreams, which is universal and poetic and eternal i mean that's uh that's a real real uh heady little cocktail 
you know. And then, you know, when you add into that uh, me, it's gonna it's gonna fly. No. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. I got to. Yeah. I just got to ride on the bus. I was not driving. I just got. I got lucky. They picked me up. Yeah, there you go. Uh, last question for you, and because we're uh, full disclosure, we're going to be doing a watch along in a couple of weeks with Lisa Wilcox for. Uh, oh, nice! Like this. Yeah, with, I love her. With, with uh, oh, Lisa's the great best. We had her on before a couple of years ago, and. We start chatting about this and raise funds for a COVID relief. So anyway, I, we're talking and I'm doing a little homework for this, for the commentary of it and all. And uh, I found it interesting. Maybe you can tell me the truth before I get a chance to ask her on air. Initially with the script, were you guys supposed to be twins? That is... That is a, a that is a rumor that I have heard, and I have repeated, but I do not. I you know what? It gets a little bit confusing for me, uh, just because to to answer that honestly, because I also have this memory. I was up for, I was one of the last uh, people up for nine hundred two one zero for the Jason Priestley role. Okay. Um and. For some, and there's a brother-sister thing there and with Shannon Doherty. And for some reason, I also have, when you asked that, I had some weird memory of, like, was that, were they supposed to be twins in, originally in that? Um, I don't know the I series well enough to say. Yeah, and so the thing is, to be honest, I can't answer that. I, to, to answer that honestly is to say I have heard that and that may be true. You'd have to ask, you know, Lisa's way better at tracking this stuff. She didn't work as hard to legalize marijuana as I did. And so. <laughs> Nothing wrong with legalizing marijuana. <laughs> no, I, 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 those, those brain cells, they are, they, they're heroes. They fought the hard battle. They died for a cause. Yes. Uh, well, actually, I've got one word for you. Okay. W- yes. Was it true? That you guys, because obviously there was this thing called a writer strike at the time, you know. So there was guys yeah. with pseudonyms and all the, you know, all the bullshit that you say. But did you and Lisa actually help write your scene with the uh, when you guys were watching the home movies after one of the deaths? That is definitely true. Yeah, basically, what happened was. Uh, we just we went into we went into a trailer and improved and wrote it down and brought it to Rennie and he said basically that they had said we need something in this scene there's not enough uh, there's a lot of cool deaths but there's not enough heart in the film so we need something with them watching and looking at this and they we don't have and have they told us they don't have writers I think it was probably more of me being like. Hey, I'll, let me write. Like, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. And I, I think they're probably like, okay, let's let them try. And then we did, and they ended up liking what we did. I, I have the strongest memory of, you know, how it is when you're in a. I don't know if you're, you're aware of this, but when you're when you're doing an improv, you're really focused on the other person. So my memory uh, is of just when Lisa said. I could feel the heat from the fire, and I just was like, "Oh, that's so great! That's gotta go in there." 
Yeah, I'm um, good with improv yeah. and comedy, so I know what you're talking about there. Yeah, I couldn't remember anything that I said or did in that improv session. And I think probably if you went back and you asked Lisa, she probably, like, that's how we, how we wrote it was that the, each of the other one was sort of taking down what the other one was saying. And then we were like, oh, okay. I really love when you said that. Let's put this in there. I love when you said that. Let's put that in there. Um, but I got to, you know, I got to, no offense to, uh, Brian Hausland, who's a great, great writer and a really excellent director. I mean, the guy wrote LA Confidential, which is one of the, my, one of my favorite films, especially as a writer. Um, but he wasn't around and I, and a lot of things from Swish Sell to Fish to Hello Baby to all, you know, so many of the things were just me ad-libbing and riffing and then keeping it in. And it's one of those things where I, I want to say that and I want to take credit for it, but I don't want to suggest that, like, there was anything particularly wrong with the script there, with the script that was there, except that it was probably not not really finished. And somehow that gave me the opportunity to, I don't know, to put my stamp on it in a way that, I probably wouldn't have if the script was was tighter. And I'll say it like this to end this. Musical, imp- well, improv and anything, the good stuff lasts forever. And the re- example I will use for that is the Joe Walsh lick that helped create Life in the Fast Lane. So the good stuff will last forever. But if you want to catch out or catch what Andras is doing, Check out RadioAtheria.com and all the other stuff going on. Andres, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. also amazing how real life can influence music but music also affects people's lives Andras Jones the guest you just heard actually has a new song out absolutely no sense of humor based on a true story that happened to him at a radio 8 ball show that was live in Olympia several years ago even though the story had to deal with something Andras experienced because of the video, somehow, it became all about Andras' friend, Andy Dick. There's a comedian in this town Who gets mad if you call him a clown Even though clown's just a synonym for his profession So let's just call him Sam The big comedian Absolutely no sense of humor about the word clown. Well, they chased me down the street outside of Obsidian. Shouting and threatening, man, he wasn't kidding. And if it happened to you, you believe that it was true. But since it happened to me, you probably think it didn't. 
Well, I did this guy the great injustice of inviting him to do my show. It didn't go as well as he hoped, and he blamed me for the whole situation. In an angry after-show text that led me to mutter under my breath, oh, I made the clown cry. are created equal, Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Hi, this is Lisa Wilcox, and I'm talking here on Crazy Train Radio. 